Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero here, and you're listening to my Tour Coach Podcast. Tour Coach Podcasts come from my stories, the interviews, my roundtable discussions, the day-to-day interaction with the people that I teach in my journey in the game of golf, whether it's tour players that I teach or tour players that have fired me or, heck, it's other teachers that I think the world of and respect or it's mental coaches, performance coaches, or, hey, maybe it's just people that have made an indelible mark on my teaching. Whatever it is, I hope this helps you learn more about the playing, the teaching, or enjoying the great game of golf. I sure as heck have fun doing this. I hope you all enjoy listening to it. We've got great sponsors. We've always got great guests. And one thing that we for sure do here on the Tour Coach is we keep it real. None of this is scripted. This is just authentic. This is the discussions and the day-to-day interactions that we have as the dew sweepers and teaching and trying to help all of you play better golf. And look, if you enjoy our instruction and you're somebody wanting to get better, why don't you come see us and get help for your game with our world-famous retreats, which are going to be at Old Palm Golf Club in Palm Beach Gardens with my good friends Mark Hackett, Dan Terleski, Colby Tuyeg, Dr. Greg Carton, and, and a host of many, many more. Or you can come see me at uh, my studio in Mobile, Alabama, or at the Preserve Golf Club. And remember, everything you need to play better golf is always going to be available for you at DoSweepersGolf.com. You can find out where I am and how to be on a podcast if you go there. Enjoy this edition of The Tour Coach. I want to introduce Dr. Paul Schemp. The idea for doing this one kind of started, uh, I had told Doc this, uh, I was going through some old notes. I've told some of these things to Jackson many times over the years. Some of the things that I learned, I was looking for some notes from an old seminar. We can't quite pinpoint exactly when it was, but I was getting ready to do a speech and it was about mentoring and about the traits and the characteristics of trying to be a great teacher versus being a good teacher and so on and so forth. And uh, I think it was around, Doc, I think it was around 2002 or three that um, I went and I heard you talk. Hank asked us to go to this teaching seminar and sat there. And for whatever reason, I was paying attention, which uh, (laughs) was probably a little rare for me in those days. Hank used to talk about my short attention span. But uh, anyways, some of the things you said really hit home. And I've, I've always, I guess I filed them away in my memory. And I, through various things I've done, I've brought them up and talked about them. And I'm going to paraphrase the thing that I remembered. And I know that uh, it's not precise, but I remembered that you said there were three phases that a teacher went through. And I think you told me there's five. But in the seminar or in, in your talk, it was the first one was that a teacher teaches kind of what they know how to do or what they work on in their golf swing. And, it, you know, and that doesn't really help lots of people because only a few people fit in that. And then the next phase that a teacher goes through is, you know, they, they get some sort of a system based on fundamentals and geometry and science and it works, but they can only operate within that system and they're really good, but that only helps maybe 80% or whatever the percentage is of people. And then over a period of years, 10 years or more or whatever, I think it was 10 years experience somewhere in there. Yeah. If you keep working hard and you learn, you develop the ability to help all types of people and understand real cause and effect and you become more of a great teacher. And so my the theme of my talk had been, you know, Hank had asked me once early in my career, do you want to be a good teacher, or a great teacher? And he said there was a difference. And then that's when he pushed me after I said that I wanted to be great. He pushed me to come and to watch you talk. So that was the genesis of this whole thing. So I thought we'd just talk a little bit, if you're OK with this. Out from all the research, the stuff you've done, what are the differences between good and great teachers? Okay, well, why don't we uh, use the the three t- step model? Because Tony, I I think developing expertise in anything, whether you're talking about golf instruction or you're talking about pastry chefs, um, we all have to go. It's a journey. We all have to go through certain steps or stages, and there's no absolute, well, I'm in this one and only this one. Uh, it kind of blends as we go through the journey. But let's let's start with novice. I mean, we all start there. And one of the main differences between novices and people at the second level, which I'm going to call competent level, the majority of teachers, if you will, is that the novice teachers focus on teaching golf. Whereas you become a competent teacher, you really recognize that it's not about the golf swing or the golf game. It's about the student. 
A number of years ago, I worked with Lauren Anderson and, and the, the staff at Golf Magazine. And we helped select, my lab helped select the top 100 golf instructors in America. And this, this point was really driven home to me by Butch Harmon. We sent out a survey. And one of the questions is, what's your philosophy of teaching? And Butch wrote, and I can still to this day picture it, uh, and every time I see him, I remind him of this, and he laughs. His first sentence was, I don't teach golf. And my immediate reaction when I read that is, well, there's probably no chance you're getting on this list, buddy. I mean, I didn't know who Butch was at the time. Then I read the second sentence. He said, I teach people. The third sentence was, I teach people to play golf. And to me, it was a huge revelation in that, if you talk to most novice golf instructors, they're teaching a sport. And, and Tony, your recollection is pretty good because I think the context I put it into is that most novice golf instructors have one idea of how the golf swing is supposed to be performed. And they think that mm -hmm. one recipe applies to everybody. And as you know, Tony, and, and please step in here, no. things change when you change your student. First of all, their physical characteristics and capabilities change. Their motivations right. for learning and playing golf change. Their ability to comprehend the information. Let me give you an example. If you were teaching a, a hockey player or a baseball player who had that, or a tennis player who had the, the basic understanding of performing a, a turn in a, in a contact, it'd be very different than teaching somebody who had never experienced something like that. So to me, that's one of the shifts between a novice who only teaches one way to all people, to somebody that begins to realize that I'm not teaching a sport, I'm teaching a person. Tony, how do you, and Jackson, please jump in here. How do you feel yeah, about it? I love that because, you know, I've said this before, I think, and I think it's probably even more applicable now than when you gave your speech back then, because we have so much of this stuff on this phone where we all have access to, I think we all have access to close to the same information about yes. teaching, right? Like, I don't know that anybody, I mean, I know that there's some stuff and guys out there doing some cool stuff and, you know, they're able to measure, but I think most of us all have relatively the same ideas and information about what has to happen with a golf club and a ball to be a good, to hit it yes. solid. And do yep. that. But I think that the real, the real difference between teachers and the ability to become better is your ability to communicate and reach more and more students, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think that, uh, you know, that's been, it's been huge for me. I, I, I'm a very simple person when it comes to teaching, but as I've gone along, I've tried to add people that are good at things that I'm not very good at because I felt like if I added them to my team, it might help me reach more people. Like I'm, I'm my brain. I don't think necessarily like listens to scientific stuff and understands it is great. Right. Mm -hmm. But so I added a biomechanics guy because I was like, I don't want to not be able to help a young guy that really needs that. Right. It's like to me, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, but I think like I think that's our job if we want to be if we want to be great. Mm -hmm. It's it's to add pieces so we can reach more people. Mm -hmm. Could I ask Stephen more? I see you're on the call. Stephen, you want to jump in? You got an opinion on this? Have you noticed that you, you teach slightly different both content and style depending on the student? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think I've I've learned as you you kind of hit the nail on the head there. As I've grown more comfortable, mm. I kind of paid less attention to the technical side of things and more to the person and mm -hmm. how they like to be taught. Like I've started in the last, I'd always journal anyway at the end of the night um, into lessons, but I started in the last month adding not only the technical but how the person liked to be talked to, so the personality traits. Wow, to learn about, mm -hmm. to learn about them. So I, I found that really really helped me because I think from my perspective, the last four years trying to learn as much as possible, I found myself kind of like in a forest and kind of like bombarded by what do I need to go learn? Okay. Right. Well, I'm going to go learn about forces and motion. Okay. I'm going to go do that. And then I'm going to go do this. And I'm like, and I find myself getting lost in the, in the minutiae of it all and forgetting about the person in front of me. Like I I've had, where I've learned about stuff or bought new technology and five minutes into the lesson, I've forgotten about the person. I was so busy setting it up. So mm -hmm. um, no, you're, you're preaching to the converted exactly what you're saying there, Paul. All right. Well, good. Thank you. Did either of the other two people on the call want to jump in on that or we ready to yeah, move anybody. to Joe, Robert, jump on in. If you, yeah. have a, if you, I, I think this would be great to hear their, you know, hear their thoughts on it. And uh, Please. Uh, anybody, Joe, uh, Robert. How 
I mean, I'll jump in here. I think, I, you know, we always have that lesson where we show up on the range, they're hitting full swings, and it's all probably happened to us where you forget to ask the person, hey, what do you hear? What do you want to work on? Next thing you know, you're doing 45 minutes of full swing, and the next thing you know, they say, hey, I wanted to come for a short game lesson. <laughs> it happens to all of us at a certain point. <laughs> right. We've all had that happen to us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, definitely the communication and asking the questions at the beginning, you'll, you'll really get a sense of, you know, the student's verbiage, you know, what they're talking about with their game. And I have some that they want to look at the video every swing, and I have some they want to see the track man numbers of every swing. So it just kind of varies from student to student what, you know, what they really want in that lesson. Robert, you bring up a great point. And uh, Tony, if you're okay sharing, if me sharing a study that, that we created a few years ago, Robert, we looked at the communication intentions of novice coaches. These were basketball coaches, novice coaches, competent coaches. These were ones that had uh, 500 records approximately at the college level and then expert coaches. And they included people like, for example, I don't know if you know the name Dawn Staley. But Dawn coached our women's yep. Olympic mm-hmm. team, and she's the head coach of University of South Carolina. They just won a national championship. We videotaped them coaching, and then we asked them, what were you intending to communicate to this particular person? Well, what was your intention? And the novices, almost to a person, said, I was attempting to be clear. And at first I thought, well, yeah, clear communication is great. And then we dug down a little bit into it, realized not not always, because here's what happened. In their attempt to be clear, they kept repeating themselves. They kept saying the same thing two, three, four times. And they also did a lot of talking. And the student wasn't doing a lot of learning. You know, after a few minutes, uh, believe it or not, Robert, students tend to tune out. You know, I came here to hit golf balls, not to listen to you uh, orate about me hitting golf balls. All right. So that was the the novice teachers. The competent teachers showed a huge shift from me being clear to the student understanding me or the athlete understanding me. And that was their intention. Did they understand what I'm trying to say? And so one of the things that they would do is they would, we call them CFUs, check for understanding. Occasionally they'd ask, Robert, you just brought this up. They'd ask a question, you know, what are you here for? Here's another one, Robert. Let's say I was on your lesson tee and what's one thing you might work with, with me on let's, what's a common uh, error that you try to help students with? Uh, Their slice. All right. And so what one thing you might tell me about my slice? Okay. So don't do it anymore. Yeah, exactly. I I came here, you know, I'm sick and tired of the ball going to the right. And I want it to go to the left. Right. So, so first, you know, first thing I might say, just to test their knowledge is what do you, what do you think causes a slice? Mm-hmm. Just as, and this is kind of for me to test their, you know, their knowledge, what they're talking about. You know, it almost seems like it opens up the communication more. Yeah. And they'll say, I watched this YouTube video of this. I, because a lot of times when you ask the questions at the beginning, Sometimes you don't you don't get the answers and you just have to keep asking more and more questions for the students to start to relax and open up a little bit more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so some might say, oh, I know I'm over the top. I have an out to end swing path. Some will say, I know my face is open and I just can't fix it. You know, those are probably the common responses that appear. And let's say I'm I'm over the top. What might you tell me I, I can do what that that might help me a little bit? let's figure out what's the root cause of why you're over the top. And it, it could be as simple as, you know, you have a open club face that's forcing you to swing over the top to get that ball to start left and curve back to the right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we keep breaking it down, well, what's causing the open face? It could be a weak grip. Okay, great. Thank you. And so let's say a few more minutes into the lesson, uh, you come back to this and you say, okay, Paul, here's that slice again. What's one thing that you might do that might help prevent you from doing that slice? And I can say, yeah, it's my weak grip again. I got to work on that. Now, you know, I understood what you said, that I got that information. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, people that lack that kind of competence is they don't do that. So they don't really know what's going on in the students' heads. And if, Robert, if you don't know what's going on in my head, 
essentially, you don't really know what's going on in the lesson. You don't know if I'm understanding. You don't know if I react to it. So you brought up a great point about asking questions. And I just kind of wanted to reinforce just how critical that is. But again, one of the purposes is so you understand what I'm thinking, what I'm remembering, what I'm taking away from the lesson, because you kind of alluded to it is students don't think the way you think. And so you've got to get on the same page as they're on. And, and what I'm hearing you say is, is just that. Now, so the, uh, the novice coaches wanted to be clear. The competent coaches wanted to be understood. This last finding shocked me. They wanted the athletes to own it. And when I mm. asked Vaughn, I said, what do you mean own it? She said, I want them to think it's their information, that they thought about it. And I said, well, do you mind telling me why that's so important? And she told me two things. She said, first, you know, when they're on the line and there's only we're down a a single point and there's only one second left and they've got two shots. I do not want them thinking, gee, what did coach tell me I should do? I want them to step up to, to that line, believing that they know how to get this done. And if they're facing a challenge, they know how to figure it out. So when I communicate with them, I want them to have command or ownership of that information. The second reason she said was, if I, as as your student, Robert, feel like I own this information, you just guided me to it. I discovered it. I'm like Christopher Columbus. By the way, did you know Columbus actually thought he landed in India? That's why we call Native Americans Indians. They have nothing to do with Indian, but that's what happened. Uh, He thought he made it. Obviously, he was wrong. But going back to the real point, if I feel like I own it, it's my knowledge, I'm committed to it. How many times have you been in a situation, an instructional situation, where a teacher will say or a coach will say something to you and you just think to yourself, well, that's bullshit. I'm never going to use that. But you never say that to the coach. And if coach doesn't really understand what you're thinking, they'll never understand that you got nothing out of the lesson. I might have enjoyed it, but you didn't get anything out of it. So clear if you're a novice, understand if you're competent, which I don't have a uh, problem with. And then finally, do my students own that information? They feel like they discovered it. And I've seen it in golf. Some of you, Tony, I noticed you were wearing a Pebble Beach golf shirt. You just got back. Did you, did you visit the Pebble Beach Golf Academy? I didn't have time, but I've been there a bunch of times. I've been in there to Laird a lot of times. Oh, I was and Laird Small is the one I was going to bring up. Laird Small is a great teacher, and I kind of discovered that from Laird is um, he and I had an opportunity to play golf one time, and my game just went sideways. I know that's never happened to any of you. And I said, Laird, you're a great teacher. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And he goes, no, you need to discover. And I said, well, how do I do that? He says, well, let's start with this. Take a swing. How do your feet feel? My feet feel okay. How do your knees feel? They feel okay. How do your hips feel? Oh, they feel a little stuck. Well, what do you need to do to get unstuck? And Robert, I was hearing that kind of teaching style right from you. And again, the fact that I discovered I needed to pull my hips back a little more and square to the target uh, on the follow through uh, basically fixed the problems I was fighting. So, yeah, the questions really helped. So go ahead, Tony. Were you going to say something? This is wonderful. You know, I was thinking I've gone to watch Butch a couple of times, observed and one and going back to where we started with this. The the first, you know, I went in there and I was thinking, man, I'm going to. I'm going to unlock this great mystery of teaching, you know, uh-huh. and the biggest thing that I took at first was one, the simplicity that it was, yep. but two, how much he talked to them and asked them about, like he had them telling stories about their family, yep. asking, and they, I mean, cause he's been all over the world. Right. So like they'd say, Oh, I'm from so-and-so. Oh, you know, so, you know, it's like, but it was like, all of a sudden there was like the thing I took from it was that, he put them at ease and it seemed to make communication easier, you know? And I think, and I don't know if that's like a trait that all really great teachers have. It seems like that I thought Hank, you know, I talked about my mentor. I thought Hank did that. Like he had this way of talking to people where it seemed to, you know, it just seemed to put people at ease and it made communication easier. Yep. Well, I I would put it this way and I, I would agree with you, Tony. There's a basketball coach. He's currently coaching Milwaukee Bucks. His name's Mike Budenholzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I started working with Mike when he was the head coach of the Atlanta Hawks. 
and in his first year as a head coach. Well, in his second year, and it had very little, if nothing to do with me, in his second year in the NBA as a head coach, he was named coach of the year. So when next time I saw him, like a couple of days later, I congratulated him and I said, bud, what do you think you do differently that every other coach in the league does not that allowed you to be named coach of the year? And without even hesitating, Tony, he said, player relationships. He said, I understand my players better than I think any other coach in the NBA, because you don't coach a team, you coach people. And it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to, to what Butch was just saying. I'll tell you a quick Butch story. A number of years ago, I was the performance coach for the Swedish Golf Federation. Long story, but I, here's uh, let me cut to the point. I was, I was at the Open Championship, the British Open, we call it. And uh, I was with some of our players on the practice tee, the warm-up tee. And Butch came up because I was right next to uh, Mickelson. Uh, Phil and my players used to be next to each other because Jim McKay, his former caddy, is from Athens, Georgia. And so whenever Jim and I were at a tournament, we used to try to get our players next to each other so we could talk about University of Georgia sports. Mm. And uh, they never caught on to that. But Butch walks up. And just stands behind Phil. He was working with Phil at the time. And Mickelson turns around. He says, I'm glad you're here. You know, I, I need some help. And so Butch watches him for maybe 10 minutes. And then he starts to walk away. And Phil says, don't you have anything to say to me? And, and Butch turns and looks at him and says, you're ready. Go get him. That was it. And I thought, I asked Butch about that later. And he said, that was the truth. He had the golf game. There was nothing I could say to him that was going to make it any better, especially just before he was going to tee off. And so then I saw him walk down to Adam Scott, and Adam was struggling a little bit. So he talked with Adam quite differently. So to your point, Tony, you know, you watch Butch teach two or three lessons, and it was almost like not only watching three different students, it was like watching three different teachers, wasn't it? Right. Absolutely. You know, and I think I've seen that on tour, too, with just different teachers out there. You watch a guy go down the line. You know, you have – I've had four or five guys playing in an event, and you go, you know, you you know, you know, watch it. It's it's a different approach with every student, you yeah. know. You know, I think that that's – you know, but, but that's a challenge. That's a challenge to go from a guy that's struggling, and then, you know, and it's hard when a guy wants – I think one of the hardest things as a teacher is when somebody wants more info, but you really know that they don't need more to, right. to play better. I think that's one of the hardest challenges as a coach is to, is to be able to say, hey, man, you're doing everything okay. And even though you didn't play great this week, mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're on the wrong track. I think that's one of the biggest, the hardest challenges as a coach. And I, I would guess that that probably comes a little bit easier the older you get with more experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes you just have to tell players, have faith in yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I also noticed that differentiates particularly novice coaches from, from competent coaches is the competent coaches will make sure, and, and Robert, you've already identified this, make sure that there is a purpose or a goal to our time together. You know, we've got a one-hour lesson or a 45-minute lesson or a 30-minute lesson. First, let's do an analysis. Let's have a conversation. Why are you here? What are we going to be able to achieve? And then either the student or the or the teacher or the coach says, by the end of this lesson, here's what I want to be able to do. I want to be able, and you could put it in general terms, like I want to be able to fix your slice, or I want to be able to change your grip and give you a few things that's going to help make that grip a little stronger, and that's going to give you a better chance to eliminate that slice. Do you agree with that? And here's the point is that, Tony, as the teacher, you know what you're working on. and Me as your student know what we're working on. So we're on the same page. You're not just throwing information at me, hoping something sticks and I start hitting the ball long and, and straight. So I noticed that with great teachers and, and great coaches in all sports is that they have a purpose, a goal, an objective, whatever you want to call it. We're working on something. And by the way, if we don't finish it, at the end of the practice, maybe we need to have it again. And in the meantime, this is what you need to work on. Or if we accomplish it, we got that done. Here's the second thing I think we still have time to work for a little bit. We're just going to make a small change. Let's try to work on this. But you make it clear what the intention 
of the information and the lesson is, the purpose. And I don't see that in novices. I see it with competent coaches. And I almost to a person see that uh, with expert coaches. You know, one thing I was, I was just going to ask your opinion on is I, I always strive to try to, one of the things I try to get out of a lesson is for them to understand how to monitor themselves when they leave, you know, because they've all got oh, phones and stuff great. or whatever. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so like, I feel like, cause you know, early in my career, I'd have people that would leave and I feel like we had a great lesson and a great understanding and right. they'd come back three weeks and I'd say, you know, Hey Joe, how are you doing? And he, oh, I've been working on this and I'm doing it exactly like it. And I'd go and I'd film them. I'd sit them down. And it was so different than what we had you know and Uh so like to me one of the things that i've i strive to do and i don't know if i do it as well as i need to but is like i want them to understand how to monitor it themselves come up with some way that you could put them in a box where they can't mess it up almost like they can that they have to learn to do it the right way and for Mm -hmm. them to be able to film themselves or whatever it is and say and look at it themselves and go is this what we were doing in the lesson and is it getting better and I mean, is that is that important in the learning process? Yes. Yeah. And again, I, I I'm not sure why there was a disconnect between the communication or or what the expectations were, but the fact that you identified it and then revisited it, I think, I think is great. I mean, I think that's something though that you know is we're here mentoring teachers is you know I think we have this idea that when they leave the student leaves and if we've gotten them hitting it better right there in front of us or hits better shots, we've done a good job. But if they leave and they come back and they mm-hmm. don't really understand and they don't have a way to monitor it, and they're right back in the same place they were, then I don't know that we've done done very much. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would agree. You know, one of the differentiators, I, I kind of want to extend what you were just saying, sure. Tony, differentiators between expert coaches and competent coaches. And you've already identified this in Butch Harmon. When I see novice coaches and many competent coaches, I see them trying to fix or put band-aids on what I call symptoms. And what the great coaches are able to do is to identify the cause. And they're able to know that if I fix the cause or we make this change, it's going to take care of B, C, D, and E symptoms. But it's all related to that one single cause. In fact, I was having a conversation with, uh, do you know Todd Soans? I do. Yeah. I actually saw him a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. I was having a conversation with Todd. Todd, for those of you who don't know, Todd teaches in the Chicago area. And uh, he was saying that so often that he finds, particularly with amateurs, the main problem that they face is their takeaway isn't any good. And if you don't have a proper takeaway, in his opinion, you can't have a proper swing. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to fix that. And so he tries to spend a lot of time on the proper takeaway, lots of drills, video showing where the club head should be, where the shoulders should be. And, um, you know, he feels like that is a serious cause to a poor swing and and really focuses on that. And I, I, you know, that's a great idea. You know, everything else that he says comes after a poor takeaway is the symptom of a poor takeaway. Now, I'm not sure if that's right or wrong. I'm not a golf instructor. I can't really tell you. But what I do know is the great ones will only work on one or two things. And it's usually the cause of the problem rather than a symptom. Yeah. By the way, I've seen some great, I've seen some great coaches or supposedly great coaches that I didn't necessarily work great coaches. And here's one of the things I'll see they'll do. Let's say, Tony, you're my student this time. And I'm watching you hit. And I say, Tony, your grip's too tight. Let's get that a little loose. Good. Okay. Now you're swinging. And I told you to work on a loose grip. And I say, Tony, your feet are too far apart. Let's move them a little closer together. So that's what you make the adjustment on. And then the next thing I tell you is now we got to strengthen the grip. I never give you feedback on anything that you might have improved. And here's why that's essential. We will often repeat what we're praised for. Let me say it again. We'll often repeat what we're praised for. So if you're trying to make a change in somebody, and if you say, hey, Paul, on that swing, Robert, let's go back to you. On that swing, you really, you know, you held that strong grip throughout. Did you notice the results you got? Yeah, I did, Robert. It felt really good. Maybe three or four swings later. You know, that strong grip is still hanging in there. I really like that. What you're doing, Robert, is you're reinforcing a key concept that I need to have if I'm going to get rid of my slice. And again, many teachers feel like it's real estate. If you bought it once, you own it. 
Well, learning's not like that. You got to revisit it time and time again, and you got to do it with praise. Here's how you're getting it right. Now, what if somebody's doing something wrong? It generally doesn't help to say, you know, you've got a weak grip. Okay, I got a weak grip. What do I do about it? Two things. One is, yeah, I'm I'm imperfect. I know that. Secondly, I suck. I know that. Maybe I should be taking up tennis. Rather than saying you got a weak grip, how about this? I could show you just one little change in your grip that might make you hit the ball straighter. Are you interested? Yeah, I'm really interested. What do you got for me? Just put your thumb over here a little bit or, or cover it just a little bit more. Now you got my full attention. By the way, same concept, but do you see a big difference in how the students perceive it and how they're going to, quote unquote, buy into it? Because everybody is looking for a tip that's going to help them be better. By the way, that's why they sell, sell golf magazines. It's all about tips. Just goes expand on what you said. I think, you know, because the theme of this is like, obviously, you know, what differentiates. I think that the expert teachers or the great teachers seem to have this knack to get the students to buy in yep. to me. Like, yeah. and, the, and to me, that helps you. That helps you get that student through the part that no matter how good we are, where they're going to hit it shitty. Yep. But if they believe that you've got the answer or that you've got them on the right path, they're willing to kind of they're willing to hang in there longer. I think that's I think that's kind of important is figuring out the ability to get people to buy in. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. Yep. Tony, you want to talk a little bit about teacher development? Because that was one of your questions is how yeah, does somebody so move from the novice to the competent to the expert level? I would love that. I, that's kind of where I, you know, I wanted to go. You know, well, what so you know, not just what the path is, but what are the sure. steps that a teacher can do? You know, Hank had this saying, I keep bringing this stuff up, but as I was going through these notes, but he would say, you can't get 10 years of experience in one day less than 10 years. <laughs> and, and, but, By the way, and for he, those of you that don't know, I love Hank Johnson. Yep. He, he was man. brilliant. And yep. but he would say, but you can get, he said, but you can get more out of your 10 years of experience than another person. You can make more out of it. So like, you know, if we all want to get better and we, you know, we all want to go from beginning to being an expert level or great, what are some of the things that you can do to get more out of your experiences to where oh. maybe you get, you move up faster, or you get better faster, or you help great students question. easier? Yeah, we did. Um, obviously, I run a research laboratory, folks, at the University of Georgia. We study expert coaches. And so um, when I talk about we did a study, that's the context of it. We wanted to know what sources of knowledge experts most relied on. And two really came up to the top. The second, and it was a very close second, close was I learned the most from my athletes or my students. If it's not working with them, it's not working. And so they're kind of like my, they didn't use the term laboratory rats, but they're my, they're my test. I know if, if this is working, they're improving, then my teaching's getting better. That was second. The first was their experience. And Tony, you just mentioned this. And so knowing the experience was really important to them. Let me put it this way. I've heard experience is your best teacher, but I often feel like I'm asleep when she's trying to give me her best lessons. So I want to know what do these experts do with their experience that allows them to learn so much? And we did a study, series of studies across three different sports. Uh, golf was one of them. And here's what we found. After every significant experience, like for example, let's say you had a great lesson or you had a really poor lesson or at the end of the day, or Stephen, I love the fact that you're keeping a journal. Maybe in your journal, you could write these, these down. They asked themselves three questions. What did I do well? Because it's very important that you know what your strengths are so you can play to them. So it might be, for example, I thought we had great communication. I thought I had great understanding of the student. I thought my my information that I offered to them was pertinent to what they needed. Whatever it was, what did you do well? Second question, what could improve? And by, by the way, not what was bad, what can improve? No matter how good you are, you can always get better. And here's what we find with great teachers and coaches. They're always looking to get better. I know in your neck of the woods, many of you in the South probably know the name Bobby Bowden. Bobby coached at Florida State University. He was one of the most successful winningest football coaches in, in college football history. 
And um, I, we were doing a study, and I don't even remember what the topic was. He participated in several of our studies. And I was with him at a, a coaching clinic, and he was doing a Q&A at the end. And no matter what the coaches asked him, he gave him a thorough answer. And if, they, if it wasn't thorough enough, they wanted more information, he gave it to him. So we're walking out, and I said, Coach, you, know, you just gave away the store. And he says, what do you mean? I said, you just gave them all of the information that you used last season to help the Florida State Seminoles win the national championship. And he said, yeah. I said, well, what are you going to do next season? He laughed. and He says, if I if I do next season what I did last season, I'm going to have my ass handed to me. He said, we've got different athletes this season. We have different opponents. I've got to come up with new information, new plays, new ways of coaching. My staff has to get on, on the page together. He said, what happened last year is only building towards what's going to happen this year. It's not going to determine what happens this year. So I love the way that I'm always learning. So first question, what did I do well? Second question, what can I improve? And then the third question, obviously, is how do I improve? Let's say, for example, I don't think we had the expectations right. I thought the student understood what I said, but at the end, they seemed really confused when they left. So what do I need to do to make sure that my student really understands when they walk off the lesson tee, what they're supposed to do with the lesson, how they're supposed to practice it, what it really means, or whatever it might be. So what do I do well? What can improve? And how do I do that? How do I improve that? Those three questions are really how you maximize the benefit of your experience. Otherwise, you just keep, you're like a hamster on the wheel. You're just accumulating more and more experience. It doesn't mean you're getting any better at it. And all of you have seen this. How many of you have seen golfers go to the driving range and just hit ball after ball after ball for an hour, maybe two hours? Are they any better at the end of that hour than they were at the beginning? No, they didn't make any changes. They didn't ask themselves after each shot or every five shots. And by the way, Ben Hogan used to do this. You know, what am I doing well? What do I need to improve? What do I need to change in my swing? And then how do I go about changing that? That's the path to, to improvement, not just for tomorrow, but for the rest of your career. Anybody want to react to that, Tony? Uh, talk about experience. I love that stuff. I mean, I think that that's, I'm just going through that stuff. I'm always trying to, every year, I'm trying to figure out like, I told you before, I think before we came on doing this, like I, I'm always trying to evaluate what my weaknesses are mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and I'm always trying to add people around me that help me learn or expand upon the things that I'm not very good at. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told you before we came like that for me was the science side and the biomechanics side. And you can look at me and tell that I'm not the most fit person. You know, I go to the gym when it's free donut day, but you know, I, uh, so I, you know, these people that I'm teaching, you know, they're not getting better because they can't do it. They physically can't do it. Mm -hmm. So I got to get somebody that helps me understand how the body works and why they can't. And I, you know, and I've become better with that over the, especially over the last six or seven years and my understanding of biomechanics and things like that's improved. But so, you know, the stuff you're saying, you know, one makes me feel good that I'm not a total idiot for thinking or for always true for looking at my weaknesses, you know, you know, but, and to me, I, what I'm curious is about is from your studies, do the, the great teachers, do they have a lot of like real self-evaluation? Is that something that they do? Like where they're real honest with themselves, with how they're doing and what they know and what they can do to get better? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting you asked that question. Do you know Tim Mahoney? I do. I did yeah. not great. I know him. From, uh, yeah. T Tim's a, I don't know what his actual title is, but he's the director of instruction for all the Troon properties. And he just asked me, we were having a conversation earlier this week. He just asked me that question. And and anybody that, Tony, could you give the email to these people? I'd be happy to send it to them if you're interested. We did a study and I, I got it right on my laptop. Let me look it up. We'll oh. send it out. We'll send out whatever you want us to send. Sure. Okay. I, I'm... My laptop looks like uh, I dropped it on the floor. Uh, it, it's called something about how the great ones, um, how the best get better. And it's about how they, you called it self-monitoring, but self-assessment. And that's really what, what this study was about. And yes, they're constantly looking to improve. 
And they, they usually have specific areas they're looking for in their continued learning. And one of the things they monitor is the success of their students. Are the students really progressing? And here's, here's another differentiator. I didn't share this one with you. When for, it, let's just call it uh, teachers and coaches with lower levels of expertise, when a student's not successful, they'll usually blame the student. For example, well, if the student would only practice, they're going to improve. Or they don't have the physical abilities to be a good golfer. Yeah. Or, you know, they just they started too late or they're starting too soon. They their background isn't right. They, you know, don't have the, uh, the level of knowledge that they need to have, whatever it is. They always look at the student as the reason for the student not being successful. Well, when you do that, you basically are not you're giving up on yourself as a coach. You don't try hard to solve their problems. And I remember having this conversation with Craig Shanklin. Let me tell you a quick story, if you don't mind. A number of years yeah. ago. The Teaching and Coaching Summit at the PGA, it was, it's held in December. It was held at Port St. Lucie. And prior to the summit, in, in the evening, the PGA offered the residents of Port St. Lucie, you could come to the, the training facility and get a free 10-minute lesson. Um, some of you may have remembered PGA was pressing that for a while. And so I, I sat there watching them. And there was three people in front of me. One was Laird Small. One was Craig Shanklin, and the other was Mike Malaska. All three of them, PGA Teachers of the Year. I mean, for some of you who studies teachers, I was in heaven. And I was watching Craig teach this one woman who walked in. There is a point to this story, so hang in there. This one woman walked in. She was uh, about 55 years old. Her husband had just retired. They moved to Port St. Lucie from New York. And he, want, he was an avid golfer, and he wanted to spend much of his retirement playing golf. Well, she didn't play golf, but she said, I don't want to spend his retirement as a widow. So I got to learn how to play golf. Can you teach me? And, and Craig says, of course we can. I, my immediate response is not in 10 minutes, but uh, Craig says, of course we can. <laughs> well, in 10 minutes, he had her hitting, I think it was eight irons. Like the trajectory was pretty good. The consistency was really good. She was really happy walking off. She felt like she could do this. And Craig said, you know, you need more instruction. But the, the, the thing is, come out with your husband when he's at the driving range. Look at the driving range you have here. Hit golf balls and just have fun. And when you're ready, take more lessons. And, and you, have a, you have a future in golf. Well, we're sitting at dinner that night, and, and if you knew Craig, Craig's uh, originally from Scotland, you put a Guinness or two in front of him, and he's great fun. I mean, the stories are hilarious, but not that night. He was very sober, very somber. And I said, Craig, what's bothering you? And he looked at me, he says, you, re you remember that woman, uh, the one from New York? Yeah. What about her? I could have done better. What do you mean you could have done better? He said, I could have done better with her, and it's really bothering me. And I said, Craig, you never met her before. You'll never see her again. You had 10 minutes, and she didn't pay you a dime for your time, and you could have done better? And he said, yeah, I could have done better. And I'm thinking, that's the reason Craig Shanklin is such a great teacher, teacher of the year, head teacher at the LPGA facility in, in Daytona Beach. Do you think he slept well that night? No. But here's what I'm going to guess is he got out of bed the next morning, a better teacher than he was when he went to bed the night before, because he thought about how do I be better? And that's a characteristic I see in great teachers. You would think it would be characteristic of novice teachers. No. People who think like that aren't novices very long. And people like that are always discovering new knowledge, new ways to solve old problems. And I see that in, uh, in Craig Shanklin. I see that in almost all great teachers that I know. Now, that's a great story. That's an awesome story. Anybody have any questions? Jackson, come on. You got to have one. No, this has been really good. I like how it all ties together, too. I think it's great because... Sometimes I think of coaching golf as like a puzzle and the better I get, the harder the puzzle becomes because I, I learn more about how to work with the person in front of me, but I also know more about the golf swing or the body. And so there's, there's a bunch of pieces in there and I, I like how you've tied it all together. It's definitely helped me. Well, thank you, Jackson. Yeah. 
Uh, as you can probably tell, I have a passion for it. I, I never thought I was a good teacher, which is why I went back to the university to go to graduate school, thinking it would make me a better teacher or coach. It, it didn't. But what it did do um, <laughs> is, is it taught me how to do research, which, you know, I have a lot of questions. It helped me answer questions. So I, when I was getting ready to leave the university, you have to do a terminal project, a dissertation, they call it. And they said, Paul, what would you like to study? And I said, it's not so much what I want to study. It's who I want to study. I want to study great coaches and great teachers, because maybe if I understand what they do, I could do that, too. Well, that's a journey I'm still on to this day. But I, I feel like I've been enormously blessed to have people like Craig Shanklin, Butch Harmon, you know, kind of let me come behind the stage, you know, behind the curtain and see how it really works. And it, I'm, I'm pleased that I have the opportunity to like this one to share it with other people who who share the passion for trying to be a better instructor for our, for our students. Wonderful. It's awesome. This has been exactly what I was hoping it would be. And, and uh, you know, it's why I reached out the other day to you, Doc. I mean, I wanted to pick your brain before I went to talk in front of all these people. We can't leave without talking about mentoring. Okay, let's go. I'm all here. right. Now, you had a mentor, this this guy yeah, from Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And he, he was, you know, I, I will say this, and I'd like your opinion on it. It's like coming up, I don't know that I appreciated how great he was. There were times that we didn't see eye to eye. In fact, we went through a period after I quit working for him where we didn't really speak because he was he could be really hard. But now, <laughs> but now he, he older, had standards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was he was brutal on you. Right. Yeah. Uh, but now I realize how important that was, you know. Right. So I, I remember like I remember little sayings that he would say to me. I don't you know, I remember like comments he made. Like he told me one time this goes to what you were just talking about. He said the reason that he goes, the reason you have a chance to be a great teacher is because you don't think you know anything. And I was like, boy, he at first I thought that, that was an insult. He? Yeah, I thought. But but like at first, at first I was like, he thinks I'm stupid. I mean, I went home all pissed off. I'm like, Hank thinks I'm stupid. You know, now that I'm older, I realize that was good, right? That was you know, brilliant. Uh, that was brilliant. You know? Yeah. I always thought Hank's brilliance was that he put he he saw talent in people that most people would pass over. Like yes. I was this guy was totally unironed. I was a train wreck. I was broke. I was a disaster. Mm -hmm. And he took me and he put me at a nice beach resort gave me some nice clothes and said, go run my golf school. Everybody thought he was crazy. Yeah. Right. But I, and he did that with tons of young teachers. So like, I felt like we have this, we should have this opportunity to give this back. So how do we help? How do we help? And I don't feel like with all the social media, everybody watches teachers online and all this stuff. I don't, and they jump out there and they throw their shingle out and they've got a track man and they start teaching. I feel like teachers today are getting away from working for mentors and being developed. And I don't, you know, so like, how do we do a better job of mentoring people? Sure. That's a great question. And you, and you set me up for some information I wanted to share with you. First of all, one of the differentiators between a mentor and a coach is a, the personal relationship. A coach is really about you have a skill set or knowledge base that you want to develop. And a coach helps lay out, if you will, a curriculum or a learning plan for you, it gives you feedback, gives you activities to help get you to that skill set. Well, a mentor, it's more long-term, it's developmental, it's personal. It doesn't just focus on the professional, it also focuses on the personal, because I'm sure all of you will agree, profession and personalities mesh. I mean, you, as you get better at what you do and take greater pride in it, it becomes more of your identity. And so you need to have a relationship with somebody who you also feel eventually becomes a friend. And here's what I mean by friend, somebody you trust, you can share information with confidential, confidentially, they're not going to share it with other people, somebody that thinks that gets you, understands you. Also, mentors, great mentors do not try to make you into a little mini me, let's call it that way. Hank Johnson never wanted uh, Tony to be another little Hank Johnson. Hank wanted Tony to be Tony. And that's what great mentors do. That's the scary part <laughs> that he wants me to be. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, here's the thing that really helps make mentoring relationships successful. The mentee or protege takes responsibility for the development of themselves. 
So they don't go to their mentor and say, all right, what do I need to do next? They go and say, I've got a challenge. I don't know, for example, um, these students, I'm not getting the biomechanics of it. Can you help me? How do I learn this information? Or I'm thinking about joining the PGA of America, but it's a lot of information. What do you think I should do? Who do you think I should reach out and contact? When as the mentee, you bring the challenge or the learning objectives to the mentor, that relationship just blossoms. So think of them more as a tour guide than an actual teacher, that they'll help guide you through the challenges that you face. Here's the second thing, other than uh, you bring the agenda to them, think about trying to start small. So you may know a teacher that is particularly good at something. Let's say, for example, you contact uh, Butch Harmon, and he'll kill me for saying this. You contact Butch Harmon, and you want to go out to Vegas, and you want to watch three or four of his lessons. He's going to say yes, by the way. But if you said you were listening to Paul Shemp and Tony Riggio, and they said that Butch was really great in player relationships, and you say to, to Butch, I'd like to see you interact with your players. That's kind of like what I focus on. And can we talk about that afterwards? Yes, he's going to say yes and invite you in. And that will be great. Now, let's say you wanted to do mechanical analysis of the swing. I'm trying to think who's really good at that. Dave Phillips, uh, Titleist uh, Performance Institute. I think Dave thinks like a Swiss watch. Everything is so technical with him. And you wanted to look at how he breaks down and analyzes the golf swing. If you went out to Dave and said, I'd like to do that, By the way, you don't have to travel all over the place. There's people in your section, in your area that are really good. And you can just kind of reach out to those people and say, you know, I've got this day off or this afternoon off. Can I just watch you teach a couple of lessons? I'm, you know, just looking always for new information. Do you mind if I do that? And I'm sure they're going to say yes to you. Mm -hmm. All right. I've got one more story to tell you. Come on. One more good one. Yeah. Uh, Do you know Michael? Good one. Yeah. Do you know Michael Breed? I do very well. Yeah. yeah, Michael, the golf fix, and now he's on serious. He's got whatever. Well, when Michael first got on the the list of the top 100 golf instructors for Golf Magazine, we used to host, they still have it, but it's changed radically. We used to have the top 100 seminar at Pinehurst every other year, and only the top 100 were invited. And it was always interactive. Nobody gave a presentation other than a couple of invited guests who were always outside the golf profession. Uh, I'll give you an example. We had somebody who was a specialist in motor learning. How do people learn motor skills? So Dick McGill came from Columbia University and gave that presentation. But other than that, it was all interactive. And one of the activities is we went to the driving range and you put your name in a hat and you and you pulled out a name of another teacher. So for example, Stephen, you pulled out Jackson's name. Well, you would go to the lesson tee for 30 minutes. Jackson, you would give Stephen a 30-minute lesson. And Stephen, you would give Jackson a 30-minute lesson. The guys loved it. I mean, there was a few women in there, but they just thought that was fabulous. We couldn't get them to shut up. They had to take it into dinner about, you really think if I turn my shoulders more, I'm really going to get a little more pop, whatever it was. Well, Michael Breed drew the name Peggy Kirk Bell. And Peggy was an icon in the golf industry. And he comes up to me, he calls me Doc. He says, Doc, Doc, I got Peggy Kirk Bell. And I said, yeah, she's great. You're going to have a good time. He goes, no, 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 no. Peggy Kirk Bell, she took lessons from Ben Hogan. What am I going to say to her? I said, Michael, you're a top 100 golf instructor in America. You'll think of something. And and I think he swore under his breath and he walks away. Well, I talked to him afterwards and I said, how'd it go? And he said it was one of the greatest experiences of of his life to get a lesson from Peggy Kirk Bell. And she liked having somebody there to kind of give her a different turn to her perspective. And I asked Peggy afterwards, I said, so what was Michael Breed like? And she said, he's a very nice young man. I I think he might make a good teacher. He's done all right. He's done, He's done all, right. all right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, sometimes maybe you offer that. Um, Jackson, I'll give you a 30-minute lesson. You want a 30-minute lesson from me? All we're trying to do is get a different perspective on how we go about the teaching of the game of golf. 
And uh, mentoring, I think, is a fabulous way to do it. And uh, usually we have one person we consider our main mentors, but it doesn't have to be. A study we did with NFL coaches showed that most highly successful NFL coaches had at least three mentors, usually no more than five because that's too many, but about three. They usually considered one person be their main mentor, but you know they always had two or three other people they also considered to be mentors as well. How many of you have mentors and you want to just share a, a mentoring story with us? It'd be great. Stephen, do you have a mentor or somebody that you consider a mentor? I'm going to guess Tony's one of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it's something I've struggled with personally um, ah. because because I'm on my not on my own but my journey to get better has been a lot on my own so that's why I joined this and this is absolutely amazing tonight by the way just to let you know but I've reached out to people so I'm, I'm lucky that I live near Scott Cox about an hour away so Scott helps me along with a lot of stuff and I spend Great. a lot of time with him and uh, Jason Sutton has oh. helped me we, we kind of chatted a lot now so he mm-hmm. kind of helps me with like other stuff and we chat so i got those two guys and mark ball is my kind of biomech guy that we're friendly so yeah i've got i've got three those three will be my kind of main now in the last year that i've developed those relationships yeah and i'm gonna guess the relationship is developed well so it goes both ways that you help them with some challenges that they're facing i don't i don't think i'm quite on their level yet (laughs) (laughs) maybe like jason we we banter a little bit have a bit of crap about like stuff and, and the podcasting and stuff that he does and I do so we kind of go back and forth on that and Scott yeah a little bit he shares some videos of some tour players that he's working on at the odd time um right. Mark not so much he's kind of like yeah a little bit higher level than me so but yeah. the other the other two guys yeah like it's I don't I, it's a little bit on imposter syndrome on my part when they do that because I don't think I'm worthy of that but yeah um it's, it's nice to feel involved in that way sometimes Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, you know, sometimes you may trip it just to, to help you with this, if you don't mind. Sometimes you might trip across, let's say, you know, a new app on your phone that you use now for gathering data or doing some kind of analysis and say, you know, Mark, have you seen this? And, and maybe he hasn't. And, you know, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, so mm-hmm. if you've discovered something, ask him if he's if he's seen it. And I'm sure he would find that useful. I did help him out with it in about a month ago. He's not good with the social media scene. <laughs> ah, there you go. Yeah, Robert, how about you? Robert? So I've spent the last 18 years working for a pretty good mentor named Jim McLean. So ah. I've been uh, pretty much 17 years in Miami, and then I went one winter out to Palm Springs when he had his uh, school at PJ West. So I did go Back from my questionnaire, basically, I stole. I know you and Tony know the name Carl Welty. See, I'm not sure if you know Carl Welty who he yep. is, mm-hmm. but Tony basically, Carl I, was on our our list. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, I basically, my my instruction thing, you know, my questionnaire is, you know, basically word for word from Carl, and we've had so many great instructors that have come through, you know, that I've worked with. I spent some time up in New York, so. Kelly Stenzel, I worked with for a long time when I was going back and forth. Tony's buddy, the Prince of Palm Beach, Hackett. You know, we've all got a drunken story with Hackett. You could always ask Hackett about how I got bit by a dog, Tony, you know, hanging out with him. Oh, God. (laughs) That's beautiful. I'm I'm getting ready to text him right now. Can I ask you a question? One of the things Jim used to do with people who worked for him, with him, that I always thought was brilliant, I think it was on a Monday morning, they used to kind of get together for an hour or two, and Jim would talk about teaching specifically, and then he would ask people to to contribute in some ways, like, uh, Robert, this week I want you to talk about XYZ. Does he still do that? Or do you remember, is that something that you do? Yes. He still does it. And, you know, there's, you know, getting called up in a Monday meeting is a very stressful, but it also gets you very prepared, you yeah. know, to talk mm-hmm. in front of people. So as long as that leg doesn't start twitching while you're talking, you're, you're probably in good shape. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. That's good. Joe, how about you? You got somebody you consider a mentor? Yeah. So uh, my, my dad, uh, Chris Foley, is probably been my biggest mentor back home. And, uh, Please tell Since your I got, dad I said hello. You've grown I, I will. since he, the last time I've seen you. <laughs> yeah, so but since I've gotten to Sea Island, uh I've had had a couple here um between Gail Peterson and Jared Zach and Justin Parsons. And so I, I've been more fortunate than most with that. 
Gail participated in one of our very, very first studies of expert golf instructors. Please give her my best. She is a sweetheart. And she's also a great teacher. One of the things I, if you don't mind a a sidebar here, one of the things I think makes Gail brilliant, it doesn't matter if her student is left-handed or right-handed, she can swing a golf club either way, and you can't tell if she's right-handed or left-handed. Beautiful swing on both sides of the ball. She also yeah, re- really legend. weird socks. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Doc, this has been fantastic. Thanks for taking the time to do this. And thanks for missing the five-star steak <laughs> dinner tonight. Steak dinner. Uh, so next time, next time, if you're at the PGA or so or something, I owe you a five-star steak dinner. I promise we'll deliver. I'll, I'll go with just a beer, Tony. That would be great. I, I very much appreciate this. I hope down the road we could do this again. And and, mm-hmm. and I would love the opportunity to continue to pick your brain and and maybe sometime we could talk you into come hanging out while we're all teaching together and and, oh, and learn more that. from. Yep, I would love to do that. Jackson, you got anything to add? No, that was wonderful. Really appreciate your time, right. Doc, and thank you guys that made it so live. We, yeah, we appreciate uh, you guys logging in live and being part of the the forum as well. So thank you, Doc. Thanks so much for doing this. I'll be in touch. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And Joe, please tell your dad I said hello. Talk about great instructors. Yeah, he's Chris is one of the best. Uh, thank you. I will. All right. All right See thanks, you guys Doc. later. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Tour Coach. I want to take a minute and thank Cordy Walker and Golf Science Lab, as well as my sponsors, Shrikshan, Buick, Bushnell, and Vineyard Vines, for helping make all of this possible and helping me share my insights with you. If you like what you've heard, why don't you check out more on the Dew Sweepers channel on YouTube as well as the Dew Sweeper on Instagram or go to dewsweepersgolf.com to find out more about my teaching, my travels, and where you can find out more about me.